Good morning. I'd like to welcome everyone to Medical Grand Rounds and the 2022 Goldman Berlin Lectureship in Palliative Medicine, hosted by the Providence Center for Healthcare Ethics. I'm Kevin Dirksen, Regional Director at the Center and the Andy and Bev Hansel Endowed Chair in Applied Healthcare Ethics. We're broadcasting live from Providence St. Vincent Medical Center on Teams Live. You can earn CME credit for either watching live or a recording of this event, which is available via the same link as the invite for today's presentation. I'll be monitoring the Q&A throughout the session, so please do submit your questions and we'll hold them to the end as time permits. This lectureship is named for two Providence St. Vincent clinical giants who distinguished themselves in providing excellent whole person care we now know as palliative care, Drs. Robert Goldman and John Berland. While Dr. Goldman is no longer with us, his son, Tom Goldman, is joining us today virtually. And I'd like to offer a special hello and extend my gratitude to Dr. Berland, who is remotely joining today's presentation as well. We thank the families and friends of these clinical exemplars and the Providence Foundations of Oregon for helping support this programming. Before I introduce our speaker today, I'd like to take a moment to thank our nurses. Full stop. We are here today because of the incredible work that they do day in and day out, exemplifying the best of the healing professions, one patient at a time. Each of the field of palliative care as we know it, the St. Vincent clinical leaders for whom the lectureship is named, and our lecturer reflect a deep and abiding commitment to providing care with an interdisciplinary team, especially the value our nurses bring to the practice of goal concordant whole person care. Thank you nurses for the work that you do. We are so grateful for you. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our 2022 Goldman Berlin lectureship speaker, Dr. Bob McCauley. Dr. McCauley is the inaugural Cambia Health Foundation Endowed Chair in Pediatric Palliative Care, Division Chief of Pediatric Palliative Care, and Medical Director of the Interdisciplinary Bridges Pediatric Palliative Care Team at Doran Becker Children's Hospital at Oregon Health and Sciences University. Prior to coming to OHSU, Dr. McCauley directed the Department of Clinical Ethics at the University of Vermont for over a decade, in addition to his clinical work as a pediatric palliative care physician. Dr. McCauley attended medical school at Yale and completed his pediatric residency at Johns Hopkins. He also holds graduate degrees in theology from Oxford and Yale and in writing from the Vermont College of Fine Arts. He currently chairs the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Bioethics. Shortly before the pandemic, he authored a widely acclaimed text on ethics and palliative care, a complete guide published by Oxford University Press. Finally, he became a trusted colleague and dear friend in the work of collaboratively responding to a range of ethical issues we confronted with uh, as a community due to COVID-19 a task he performed with a keen intellect, a passion for justice, and an abiding integrity. Please help me welcome Dr. Bob McCauley. Thank you so much, Kevin, for that very gracious introduction. I appreciate the Goldman Berlin families for their generosity in creating this opportunity to spend some time together. Um, so this title I cannot claim ownership of. My friend Kevin, I have often said to him, if this whole ethics thing doesn't work out, he has a career in titling talks because he is incredibly creative. Um, and so the title is A Doctor's Strange Love or How I Learned to Manage Compassion Fatigue and Love the Hard Conversations, a reference which many of you will recognize to the classic movie Doctor Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Um, a dark comedy about potential nuclear war, which is something that takes a lot to actually draw some uh, humor from, and especially in our day and age. Um, and so hopefully we're going to be able to move in a positive direction with our uh, time together today and try to draw potentially some meaning and um, also some goodwill out of very difficult conversations that we often have in our work. 
So we're supposed to put up objectives. We're going to talk about burnout. We're going to talk about compassion fatigue, and we're going to talk about moral distress. We're actually going to spend some time on moral distress. I think we talk a lot about it, but I sometimes don't know if we actually know what we're talking about or what we're referring to. So we're going to kind of refine that. So let me take a bit of a step back. As Kevin said, um, I practice pediatric palliative care. Now to the uninitiated, when I say I practice pediatric palliative care, first of all, they're kind of surprised that such a field actually exists. Um, I often think to myself, it must be a really nice world to live in where you don't acknowledge the fact that kids sometimes get serious illnesses and sometimes die. Um, unfortunately, that is a world that I do not live in. And so when people ask, well, what exactly does that mean? I explain that it's the care of children with serious or life-threatening or even terminal illnesses. Then they immediately, I can kind of see the wheels moving in their brains. They think kids, they think cancer, and they think death all in a row. And then I try, if they want to, to clarify that a little bit. Certainly the kid part is accurate. It is pediatric palliative care. Cancer is actually not accurate necessarily. It's only unlike in adult palliative care where it's the most common diagnosis for referral. In pediatric palliative care, it's only the third most common following genetic congenital and musculo, neuromuscular conditions. And then I also tell them that the whole death piece is actually not definite either. One of the great things about pediatric palliative care, I think compared to adults, is that sometimes kids get better. They are incredibly resilient and wonderful people. Also, even if they don't get better, we have a chance to get to know them over a longer period of time. And so we often get involved much earlier and are able to walk a journey that is longer with them. The bottom line though is, and this is a, um, a pie chart of causes of death in children, is we do lose a lot of the kids that we serve. And that is incredibly difficult. Um, and when people realize that, or when I admit to that, they often say something very akin to, I'm so glad I don't have your job. That, that's assuming we get that far in the conversation because when I first started practicing pediatric palliative care, I was so excited about finding this thing that meant so much to me and brought together some of the many of the things that I felt like I was focused on that when I would go to a cocktail party and people would sort of say, hey, you know, what do you do? And someone's like, well, I'm an architect or someone's like, yeah, I work here. And they'd come around to me, I would say, well, I practice pediatric palliative care. At which point they would be like, palliative? What is that? And then I would explain. And this lighthearted cocktail party would quickly degenerate into something very different as they walked over and bellied up to the bar. And I didn't see them for the rest of the evening because they're like, I really did not want to talk about that. To the point now where I just sort of claim I'm a pediatrician and when people say, oh, that must be nice because then you get to, you know, cuddle babies and give shots. I'm like, well, first of all, pediatricians do a whole lot more than that. But I just let them go along with that because that, I think, introduces less sorrow into the world in that moment. But if they ask, I will say more, like, tell me more about that. And if they keep digging, I will say more. And they're often surprised, as you might be, to hear that I love my job. Like, love it, love it. Um, and that may seem like a surprise because of the topics that we deal with and the things that we see. So riffing on Kevin's really witty title, I'd like to sort of talk about what that means, like how we deal with compassion fatigue and all the work that we deal with and burnout, because while I see that in my work, people in healthcare see it all the time in their work. I appreciated Kevin's shout out to nurses this during this nursing week because nurses see it, I think, way more than physicians do because I sort of flit into rooms, see patients for a little bit of time. I have periods of time where as an academic doc, I'm off service and can recharge my batteries. And I look at the nurses I work with who are there on the front lines day in, day out, doing 12 hour shifts by the bedside. And I think to myself, how do you keep going when you experience that tangible suffering on a day to day basis? Um, so let's talk about what that means in terms of how we go forward. I'm going to speak mostly from a physician angle because I am a physician. That's sort of the perspective I have, but I think hopefully a lot of this will have application to others as well. So I love my job, but clearly not all physicians do. Because the literature is replete with reports about physicians have experiencing job dissatisfaction. This is a report from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine that it's kind of remarkable they actually track this, that the average emergency medicine physician will do 4,000 computer clicks on one shift. That's how much time they spend on data entry and paperwork and taking us away from the things that probably drew us to medicine in the first place. Many of us work in a very 
profit-driven RVU-based system where it's all about productivity. How many patients are you seeing? How are you billing for that? And then given the fact of all that we're facing in our world and our work and the importance of it, we deal with moral distress, which we're gonna talk more about near the end of the hour. So that all that adds up along with many other factors to being depleted, tired, fried, crispy is my new favorite term for how some of us feel sometimes, and other ways of talking about burnout. So let's be clear about what we're talking about. So burnout has been defined as a form of mental distress manifested in normal individuals who experience decreased work performance resulting from negative attitudes and behaviors. So you can see from that definition that it is based on the clinician's interaction with the work environment. It is a work phenomenon. It is quite prevalent. So this was from JAMA, and this is looking at depression and depressive symptoms among resident physicians. And they found that 20 to 43% of trainees screen positive for depression or depressive symptoms during residency. So this starts very early. So you might think to yourself, wow, this is really hard. Um, and it starts that early. Maybe residency is especially hard, but I think it continues past that point. So I was warned about this when I got into this business. So I'll tell you a tale of two orientations. So as Kevin mentioned in the introduction, so I studied both medicine and theology, um, and I did a combined MD, MDiv program. And I will vividly, always vividly remember when I was in medical school, I had the proverbial orientation talk where somebody got up there in front of all of us, eager first year medical students, looking forward to this career that we have chosen for ourselves. And that person warned us, they said, in your entering medical school, I want you to be prepared because doctors have the highest rates of divorce, substance abuse, and suicide. Put a little damper on our eager enthusiasm on our first day of medical school. But I was appreciative of the warning and the fact that we needed to take active steps to prevent that from happening. Then a couple of years later, I started divinity school. And on the first morning of divinity school, someone got up to all of us who were eager to pursue our theological studies, many um, looking to have it lead to ordained ministry, and said, I need to warn you that clergy have the highest rates of divorce, substance abuse, and suicide. So I drew two conclusions. The logical conclusion is, one of you has to be wrong because you can't both be the top on that list. And the practical conclusion is either way, I'm really screwed because I'm doing both. And if both have this really high rate, I'm in trouble. But I think more is more important than most. Doesn't really matter who is the most of anything, but more is important. And compared to non-physicians, studies have shown that physicians are much more likely to commit suicide, much more, especially female physicians. We have a higher divorce rate and on and on and on. And we see this increasing prevalence of burnout occurring. So this is burnout rates by specialty. I don't expect people to look at each and every specialty, but what you can see is that the purple line is in 2011 and the red line is in 2014. And you can see that it's going up in every single one. And this is significant because burnout actually is a stronger predictor than depression for poor job satisfaction. And it has increased risk of all kinds of health issues. So this is not just someone not really liking their work very much. This has got profound implications for people and their own health and the care that they provide to others. Now, this has not been overlooked. So there are books written about physician burnout, about how to diagnose it, how to work with it, how to treat it. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. The Surgeon General himself is concerned about physician burnout saying if physicians aren't happy and healthy themselves, they can't heal others. And there are even cartoons about the Surgeon General being concerned about physician burnout. Um, and so this is a cartoon for those who may not be able to see it, where a very tired physician says, what seems to be the problem, Mrs. Johnson? And she says, I feel the way you look. Now, this reminds me when I was a resident, I trained back before resident work hour limits and I did sort of the classic 36 hour shift thing. And I clearly remember there was one time around two o'clock in the morning, I was admitting a new kid to the hospital for a not super serious condition. And evidently I must have looked really bad because his mother actually asked me if I wanted to lie down in his bed because he'd be comfortable in the chair because that's how tired I looked. But that was when I was a resident. We're talking about people throughout the course of their career where they can't just say, if I can only make it through these three years or five years or six years, I'll be okay. This is in perpetuity. So this is created 
in addition to the classic triple aim of healthcare. So the triple aim of healthcare people oftentimes talk about is better healthcare experiences for patients, better health outcomes for populations and lower costs. If you can do the trifecta, then whatever intervention you're talking about is going to be embraced. And then people have added a fourth, which is improving the work lives of clinicians and staff who provide care. So what, are, what happens? Why does this happen in terms of burnout? So what are the causes of, this is from the family physician literature, of family physician burnout. And as you can see, there are a bunch of these that we've sort of already talked about a little bit. Too many bureaucratic tasks, spending too many hours of work, increased computerization of practice, those 4,000 clicks for the emergency docs. So there are a lot of things that are going on. Too many patients, too little time, RVU focus, not enough time to do what I need to do, taking charts home, staying up late, completing my documentation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what does it look like though on the ground? Like if those are the causes, what does burnout look like on the ground? Emotional exhaustion, being tired when you go to work, having a hard time connecting emotionally with patients, cynicism, depersonalization, sense of ineffectiveness, lack of personal accomplishment, I'm working hard, what am I accomplishing? What impact am I making? And you hear words like doubt and guilt and the sense of being responsible for so many things and not being able to make a difference. So in terms of symptoms of burnout on the individual, you have both individual and team. So in terms of individual things, we talk about exhaustion, we talk about tr trouble with emotionally difficult situations, numbness, detachment. And then in team things, we talk about low morale, high, job turnover, which has big implications on team dynamics and also organizational function, staff conflicts, and many others. So the take home message here is, is that burnout isn't just a healthcare professional struggling with something and trying to overcome it. It has an impact on patient care, which is what we're all about. So exhaustion leads to distancing. Depersonalization leads to detachment. And then ultimately it leads to suboptimal care of patients. And we see that with lower patient satisfaction scores, longer post-discharge recovery, more medical errors. So impacts the work we do across the board. And all of that I've been talking about, RVUs and clicks and moral distress, all of that was before COVID hit. So wherever we happen to be before 2020, now we're in a much worse place, I would argue. We see the turnover happening much more frequently now. And part of it is because people were working at their limits or beyond their limits before COVID. And then COVID hit, and all of a sudden we were asking people to work far beyond their limits in terms of too many patients critically ill, trying to understand what that meant. And also recognizing for the first time, probably in modern memory, that people on the front lines were then at risk themselves from a physical basis. Like it's not just emotionally, but now I'm putting myself at risk to take care of all these patients because I might contract COVID and especially in the pre-vaccine era that has huge health implications for me as a healthcare professional. We had very difficult decisions to make. Kevin mentioned them earlier that some of the work that he and I and others in health systems across Oregon worked on in terms of COVID triage planning and allocation of scarce resources. We had to witness people suffer and often die alone because for good ethical and medical reasons, but incredibly heart-wrenching personal ones, we as healthcare institutions limited visitation in order to try to stem the pandemic. And what ended up happening sometimes is that people died with only healthcare professionals at their side, separated from their family and friends. And the COVID-19 effects here, again, just on physicians, this only perspective I have, but also clearly on other healthcare professionals, um, the COVID effects on physicians were profound in terms of sense of self-risk, their sense of their family's well-being, their own stress levels, their own psychological well-being. It's the first time in my personal career that I've ever had to take into account the fact that where I went to work each day on some level put my family at risk. You know, when we were not as clear about the method of transmission of COVID, like I would wear a separate set of clothes to the hospital. I'd shower and put back on my street clothes before I left. I would be very cautious. Like at one point, I would like not see anyone in my family. I would run straight into another bathroom, take another shower, change everything out. I'm like, my kids are now at risk because of the work that I do. 
And historically, healthcare professionals have had to deal with that, but this was my first time having to deal with it. So what that leads to is burnout, plus that secondary trauma that we are experiencing as healthcare professionals. We see people suffer. We try our best to help them. That is what our calling is, but we see people suffer and that leads to secondary or vicarious trauma. And that can lead to compassion fatigue, which I'm going to now distinguish from burnout. So compassion fatigue has been defined as a formal caregiver's reduced capacity or interest in being empathetic or bearing witness to the suffering of patients and is the emotional state that results from knowing about the traumatizing events that another human being experienced. So you have burnout, which is a system-wide issue that is based on the work environment that leads to, when added to this sense of secondary trauma, this sense of compassion fatigue that evolves out of that physician-patient relationship because of the trauma that we are seeing, potentially with fewer tools that we are equipped with in order to deal with that. So it's based on that or stems from that secondary or vicarious traumatization. And some of the symptoms of compassion fatigue mimic those of post-traumatic stress disorder. Hyperarousal, you sense something and you are immediately aware and defensive. And also avoidance, that if we have limited reserves, if we are feeling emotionally exhausted and we know that we are going to enter into this place, this context, that puts us at greater risk of experiencing further trauma even beyond ourselves and even in a merely but still significantly a secondary role, then that leads us to avoid that. So there's some warning signs of compassion fatigue in staff. Heightened anxiety, irrational fears, exhaustion, absenteeism, difficult separating work life from personal life, anger, irritability, all of these I think are understandable sequelae of I'm struggling here and now you're asking me to take on someone else's burden as well. And what ends up happening is our tanks are running dry. We're tired and the thing that drew us to healthcare to help others becomes potentially the hardest thing for us and potentially adds to our own suffering. Compassion fatigue, and this is long before COVID, begins early. This is a really interesting study that looked at the degree of vicarious empathy, that is the ability to have a visceral empathic response to another human being based on year in medical school. So if those folks can see, oh, I didn't mean to do that. Um, and so if folks can see you have M1, M2, M3, and M4. So those are the four years of medical school. And the interesting piece about it is these three lines up here are high and low end and mean. And interestingly enough, these are for female medical students, the top area, and this is for male medical students. So if you want, I, and forgive this very non-binary language that I'm using, but this was the construct of the study. It basically shows that by the end of um, medical school, female medical students have reduced their empathy to the point where that's actually where the male medical students started off. Um, but the bottom line is everybody over the course of medical school has decreasing empathy for some of the issues that we've just been talking about. So what are some common responses or advice? Like we know there's a problem with burnout and compassion fatigue. So there must have been, as I said before, a lot of books written on this. So what is the advice that people give? Self-care is one, being grateful is another, and self-protection, realizing that sometimes you need to step back in order to protect yourself from suffering. So those are some common responses, and I'm going to argue that they don't work. So let's look at each in turn. So self-care, compassion fatigue tips. You have like handouts that say, here's some compassion fatigue tips. And at the bottom of the list, the fifth one is self-care. And I have to confess, I've talked about this, I don't think intrinsically there's anything wrong with self-care. Oftentimes, I find myself quoting the proverbial flight attendant who says, make sure that you put on your own oxygen mask before assisting others. This is the, also the parent of four formerly small children talking. Um, and thankfully, they don't usually go to the point of adding the sort of blunt addition to that, which is seriously, you can't help anyone if you're dead. We even have specific steps that organizations have taken, very well-meaning steps like, 
code lavender, if people have heard about that. So we have lots of codes. We have code blue for cardiac arrests. We have codes for fires and 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 patients who have potentially eloped and all kinds of different things. And code lavender is someone who's having a hard time. So we have a many organizations have a self care cart or a team that says, how can we attend to you? And it might have food that's yummy or treats or something like that. And clearly with the best of intentions. But there are problems with self care, at least in isolation. One is it may not be possible to engage in self care if work expectations prevent it. Um, this was brought home to me a couple of years ago when uh, we had a pediatric ICU fellow spending a couple of weeks with our palliative care team at OHSU in Dornbecker. And she was actually her sixth year of postgraduate medical training. She had done three years of pediatric residency and now was in her third and final year of ICU training. So after four years of medical school, it's a long road. And we were following a patient on our team who we were trying very, very hard to get home. We knew she, this patient was dying and had everything in place to get this patient home, which is where she wanted to be before she died. And literally on the morning of her discharge, she died unexpectedly in the hospital. And this, I, I probably shouldn't admit to this, but you know, doctors are not supposed to have favorite patients. I have favorite patients. She was one of my favorite patients. And this really hit me hard. And I went, we were supposed to do our handoff for our team and go through all of our patients. And we were all grappling with the fact that this patient had died and just first of all, that she had died. Second of all, that she had died, not where she wanted to be. Um, and it was an incredibly difficult morning. And so we spent probably half hour, 45 minutes processing our feelings, like remembering her, talking about what our hopes had been for her, our own response, how we can look out for each other. And I so appreciated our team for doing that. I was also incredibly struck by this ICU fellow who was spending a couple of weeks with us saying that was the first time she had ever seen that. Four years of medical school, three years of pediatric residency, three years of ICU training. I think that adds up to 10 years of medical training. Never saw that. Now, I don't mean to be critical because there's a reason she never saw that because she's working in an ICU and if a patient dies, she's still got 20 odd other patients who are at risk of dying and she has a responsibility and I so respect that. One of the things I think that we in palliative medicine are able to do because we recognize its importance and have the latitude to do so is to pause and feel our grief. So self-care is great to say if you can do it. There are some people who just can't do it. They have other patients who are relying on them. Self-care alone also overlooks the institutional role in burnout and compassion fatigue. If you're giving someone too much to do such that a human being cannot do it, to say to them, you should really look out for yourself when you're not here is really not a solution. It's an excuse. And ultimately, it just isn't enough because if self-care by itself may be that when I'm not here, I take care of myself. And when I am here, I just maybe go through the motions and I lead. it may lead to distancing because I can't do anything to protect myself, to engage, to restore myself here at work. And studies have shown that physicians with burnout who use self-care without self-awareness, we're going to talk more about self-awareness, may feel as though they're drowning and barely able to come up for air, whereas self-care with self-awareness is like learning to breathe underwater. So we're going to talk more about that. So the second common response, I think, is to be grateful, which is to say, like, look at some of the good things that are going on. And don't get me wrong, I think there are interesting studies about gratitude, but done in a more sort of superficial way, I think that this can actually be counterproductive and potentially even harmful. So this is one of my favorite books called Everything Happens for a Reason. Now, the key thing is to look at the subtitle, which is And Other Lies I've Loved, written by Kate Bowler, who is a theologian at Duke, who as a young woman with a young child and a burgeoning career was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And she talks about the trite aphorisms that people have bestowed upon her and the platitudes over her life and how unhelpful they are. Things like, 
smile. It could be worse, which might lead someone to say, they said smile, it could be worse. I smiled and it got worse, so it doesn't really prevent things from getting any worse. Focus on the good. Well, at least now he's at peace. Like, I, I swear, like, as a palliative care doc, the two words I think no one should ever say to a grieving family is at least like those two words should never go together because what you're trying to do is to pull something good out of something that is inherently has no goodness in it. And there are other platitudes we sometimes see. God must need another angel around the throne tonight. Some people say to which some people would respond easy for you to say since God didn't ask you for your angel. Leading some of us to sort of say that we're trying to focus on gratitude, but in the end, we end up, for those of you who like Seinfeld in the Serenity Now episode of, we say Serenity Now, then we say it louder, and we say it louder, or by the end we're screaming it, and it's really not a whole lot of serenity going on. Which has led some people to talk about gratitude shaming. To say, you know, you should be grateful for this, or there are things to look on the bright side. And it almost makes people feel guilty for the fact that they are grieving. And actually, I think that's a pretty normal human response. And so some people have actually used the term toxic positivity to describe an overemphasis or over-reliance on gratitude. And the last thing that I don't think really works is self-protection. So it's a natural human response to pull back from something that is dangerous, that is hurtful, that is potentially injurious. Um, and I recognize that at the same time, um, what that does is it separates us from what is most important to us and cuts off our lifeline, I would argue. So Matthew Ricard, I'm going to talk more about him in a couple of minutes in his book, Altruism, says that empathic reverence, resonance with pain can lead when it is repeated many times to emotional exhaustion and distress. It affects people who emotionally collapse when the worry, stress, or pressure they have to face in their professional lives affect them so much that they're unable to continue, continue their activities, whether professional or personal. And this is not a new concept. It's been written about poetically many times. This is from Auden's The Cultural Presupposition. Happy the hare at morning, for she cannot read the hunter's waking thoughts. Lucky the leaf unable to predict the fall. Lucky indeed the rampant suffering, suffocating jelly, burgeoning in pools, lapping the grits of the desert. But what shall man do who can whistle tunes by heart? Nose to the bar when death shall cut him short like the cry of the shearwater. What can he do but defend himself from his knowledge? And isn't that really what stepping back is, is protecting ourselves from the knowledge of what we know will come. And ultimately that leads to separation from the human connection that initially drew us to this field. So these are the common responses that, as I said, I don't think work for burnout or compassion fatigue. So I'm going to not leave you with, well, those things don't work because I'm supposed to sort of say, hey, think about these things that might. So I'm going to talk about modifying expectations, leaning in, and then addressing moral distress. And I think they just might work. So what about modifying expectations? Um, the older I get, the more simple I think I get. Um, and I used to be much more complicated, I think. But nowadays I try to look at things in pretty simple terms. And I think that, to not to go all Buddhist on you guys or anything, but like I think that dissatisfaction largely comes from wanting more than you got. So the two ways of solving that is you either get more or you want less. And people have said that in various other formats which I think has resonance for me as a palliative care doc, like one of my hospice colleagues once admitted, just like, you gotta face it, my patients have a 100% mortality rate. So if my goal is to cure, then wow, did I go into the wrong field. And so part of that is being aware of what we have and not looking for anything beyond that. And this comes back to that notion of self-awareness. So self-awareness, Unlike self-care, which occurs outside the physician-patient relationship, self-awareness happens within it. It involves self-knowledge and an awareness of myself and this other person or people that I'm working with. And in the realm of palliative medicine, it means changing what the goal is. So my goal is not to cure people because that's not my job. And most of the time, even if it were, I wouldn't be able to succeed. My goal is different. 
So for instance, even that patient I mentioned earlier, my goal for her was that she got home before she died. And one of the reasons for my grief being so acute was that I failed at that goal too, despite my best intentions. But there are things that we do in my work that I think are incredibly meaningful. And if we alter what our goals are, then we can potentially achieve those. And they are to have people feel listened to, to have people be able to face what their fears are, have people try to figure out what their goals are and how we can achieve at least some of them. Classic thing in palliative medicine is we say to people, what are you hoping for? Which I have to confess, a lot of patients look at me like no one's ever asked me that question before. And we don't just stop there because after we hear the first one, which I can tell you what it is, it's that if it's to a parent, it's that my kid be cured and leave a long and happy life. Totally get that. And then after we get that answer, we say, and what else are you hoping for? And we keep going down the list until they run out of things. And you'd be amazed at how many things people hope for. There was actually a study done a few years ago in the pediatric oncology literature that found that parents of children with cancer are able, if you do that, to identify seven distinct hopes, median of seven distinct. So half had less than seven, half had more than seven. And those seven are not always consistent with each other. Seven might be long, happy life, and another might be die comfortably in my arms, which don't go together. And what that says is people hope for a great many things. And so one of the things we try to do is to say, if we can't get your first hope, or maybe even your second, or maybe even your third, maybe we can get your fourth. And I think that we as a field, given the fact of human finitude, need to somehow become at peace with the fact that at least we achieve that. So modifying expectations. The second is leaning in. So not leaning in the Sharon Stolberg sense, but leaning in in the sense of the emotional sense of a healthier alternative to withdrawal that pulling your hand away from the flame and which can lead to compassion fatigue or be evidence of compassion fatigue is to develop compassion satisfaction through something known as exquisite empathy. Now I want to acknowledge this is sort of an unnatural thing. Like if there's pain there and it hurts me, my natural human response is to pull back. What this is talking about is stepping forward in order to more fully engage, recognizing the risk involved, but also being able to connect with that person. And the studies have shown that among trauma therapists, those who use that technique were actually invigorated rather than depleted because it fed something in their soul to say, I am making a connection with this person. And then it's actually protective against compassion fatigue. This leads to what some have called bi-directionality. So trauma can lead to post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress-related symptoms. But there's also a concept and a phenomenon known as post-traumatic growth. So if there's an opportunity to learn together, to share in a bi-directional rather than me simply serving you fashion, that can be mutually nourishing. Now that's dependent upon emotional health and personal connection and also a sense of personal accomplishment that I'm actually doing something here, which leads me back to Matthew Ricard. So Matthew Ricard is a neuroscientist who's also a Buddhist monk. He actually was the Dalai Lama's translator, official translator when, when the Dalai Lama went to France because he's French. And so a friend of mine said, you should really read this book called Altruism by this Buddhist monk. So I'm thinking this is going it's going to be very wise. It's going to be very pithy. I figured it was going to be some little pamphlet that I could probably get through in the afternoon. So I ordered it from Amazon only to find out that I was totally wrong about how much detail Brother Ricard puts into this book. I should have figured that he was more of a neuroscientist than a monk when it comes to the length of what he wrote. Um, so he wrote about this. And the reason that this got a lot of press is that he was recognized by Time Magazine even as the happiest person in the world. I don't exactly know what their metric was, but um, they recognized him as the happiest person in the world. So people were like, what's he got going on that other people don't? And that led to some really interesting, actually neuroscientific discoveries. What they recognized, and this is not them, but this is what they applied, was that there are sort of three distinct states that one could be in. One is what some people would call sympathy, what they are calling here emotional contagion, which is like, I somehow feel bad for you. Something about what's going on with you 
I recognize as that must be painful. The next step is what's called empathy, which is more of an affective dimension. So I'm not just recognizing that I feel this on your behalf. I feel bad for you. But the third, which I'm really going to focus on for the next few minutes is compassion, which is I want to help you. So I'm not just recognizing, I'm not just feeling, I am acting. And it's that empathy, compassion distinction, I think that sometimes gets confused. So based on this neuroscientific work with Matthew Ricard, they found that the parts of the brain associated with feeling bad for somebody are different than the ones where I'm actually doing something. So when I see pain, certain parts of my brain are activated. When I'm engaging in compassion, which is doing something, acting based on the empathy, there are different parts of the brain that are activated. And the way they discovered this was they took Matthew Ricard, happiest person in the world, incredible meditator, incredibly empathetic, compassionate person, and they put him in a functional MRI and they said, imagine someone else suffering. And they were expecting to see the parts of the brain that are linked to happiness light up and none of them did. Like he was empathizing to beat the band, but the parts that led to happiness in his brain were not lighting up. And then they said, now imagine you helping that person, making a difference in their lives. And all of a sudden the happiness parts started lighting up like crazy. So the take home message is that empathic resonance with pain can lead when it's repeated many times, just feeling bad for somebody, engaging in this very dangerous, very noble human activity of allowing yourself to feel for another human being to emotional exhaustion. Um, and it affects people who emotionally collapse when worry, stress, all that adds up too much. So actually they would argue, Ricard would argue, that burnout is not so much compassion fatigue because compassion can be energizing. It's empathy fatigue. It's a feeling of helplessness, suffering I can't help, which is where that leaning in and modifying expectations to say, I can help. I might not be able to fix it, but I can make it better somehow. Which reminds me like um, a friend of mine who was a father of one of my patients a long time ago, we became friends. And he said to me, this is like five years after I treated his kid who did very well. He said to me, we were at a concert together. He said, I finally figured out what you do. And I'm like, pardon me, he's like, it took you this long. And second of all, like, I'm not actually sure what I do. So would you please tell me what I do? And he said, you take a really crappy situation and you make it less crappy. Now, as a recruiting tool for palliative medicine, that's probably not going to get droves of people to sign up. But for those of us who are involved in a situation to make something less acute, less painful, even if you don't take away all the pain, is can actually be a very noble thing. So we talked about burnout and secondary trauma leading to compassion fatigue. But if you get involved in what is called compassion satisfaction or taking it further to that notion of, you know, taking empathy to the point of true compassion, then that can actually be protective against compassion fatigue or as they talk about empathy fatigue. All right, last thing in our last few minutes is this notion of moral distress. Moral distress got a lot of play in the medical literature. People talk about it a lot. And personally, this brings to mind that classic quote from the Princess Bride about moral distress, like you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means, because I think we use it imprecisely and I think we often use it incorrectly. So if you look at moral distress, it actually came out of the nursing literature in the 1980s. And essentially what it means technically is, you know what the right thing to do is, but something is preventing you from doing it some kind of structure, some kind of hierarchy, some kind of barrier. And it's reflected in the fact of the top reasons for moral distress among clinicians is you have a sense of what's right and you're not listened to, that someone is doing something that you believe is wrong, that a patient is being subjected to something you don't believe they should be subjected to. I would actually prefer to call that moral constraint. So it's, I'm constrained from doing what I believe to be morally wrong. Because in common usage, moral distress actually, I think, is more likely to refer to moral uncertainty. When people say I'm experiencing moral distress, it doesn't mean that they're saying that's the right thing, but I can't do it. They're like, I don't know what the right thing to do is. And I want to be really clear, like that's not insignificant. I'm not minimizing that. I'm just saying that that's actually, I think, how we use that term. And there's actually a third way, too, that I, sometimes we use the term. It may reflect something not just disempowerment moral constraint or not just moral uncertainty, it could be that I actually think I, 
I know what we should be doing, and maybe we are doing it, but it still feels wrong. So Hegel spoke of tragedy as the conflict of right with right. And some people have used the term for clinical ethics as the search for the least bad option. So sometimes we come up with the least bad option, but it still doesn't feel good because we want something that isn't just the least bad. We want something good, but it just doesn't exist. So we have these three things that we sometimes refer to as moral distress, moral constraint, moral uncertainty, and moral angst. So what do we do with that? And I would say, first of all, you got to ask the right question to get the right answer. So first of all, we have to figure out which one we're talking about in order to tailor our responses. So for moral constraint, if someone's like, I know what the right thing to do is, I just can't do it, then people have suggested multiple steps. One is to inform. Maybe we don't understand all the different issues that are happening. I find this so often when I have a staff person being like, I can't believe we're doing this, and they weren't involved in certain conversations. They weren't privy to certain information. We don't do a very good job of informing the other members of our team of what's going on. Like I might sit in a room and have a two hour discussion with a family. If I don't share that, document it, and make sure everybody knows about it, who can blame the overnight nurse for saying, why the heck are we doing that if he or she was not part of that conversation and didn't understand what was going on? We need to ask questions like, is everybody okay with this? We need to work as a team. We need to include other opinions to make sure that we're all feeling heard. And ultimately, I would say is we need to look at ourselves in the mirror, which is if I'm so sure that that's the wrong thing to do, whatever we're doing, why am I so sure? What does that say about me? For moral uncertainty, if we're not sure what to do, then we have to engage in open-minded dialogue. We have to, again, seek out a wide range of opinions. We have to seek out other input. Just because I'm not sure what to do doesn't mean that there isn't help out there. And that is why our colleagues in ethics and palliative care can help frame discussions and frame questions and facilitate movement towards some kind of conclusion. And then with moral angst, I think sometimes this is the hardest one because if I think I know what to do, but I can't do it, at least there's some comfort in feeling confident. Like at least I've come to a conclusion. Moral uncertainty is, is difficult, but at least there's a hope of conclusion. Like maybe there's something out there that is going to be okay. I just haven't found it yet. In some ways, I think moral angst is oftentimes what we really mean and potentially the most dis, most unsettling because I maybe I've done all the good work. I've talked to people. I brought out disparate opinions. I've looked in the mirror and asked myself why I'm not so sure I'm right. Maybe I'm not so sure anymore, but maybe we've all come to the conclusion that this is the best we've got. And this is not what we want for our patient. Which again brings us back to maybe desiring less. I don't mean to say desiring less as in apathy. I don't mean to say it in terms of accepting of mediocrity. I just mean that if that's the best we have, maybe the problem isn't the fact that we haven't worked hard enough or devoted ourselves enough. It's the fact that we are limited finite human beings. And sometimes this is the best we have and we have to try to figure out how to draw goodness from it. So the sense of moral angst could be taking active steps. You know, we can try to be preventive, like look farther enough down the pike to try to not put in a position where we have to go with the least bad option. But if we are at a point of the least bad option, taking care of ourselves and each other and realizing that some of the stuff that we do, while it may not be as much as we hope we could do, still ha may have a really profound impact on another person's life. So in summary, as I'd love to have some time for conversation, a few take home messages. The natural response I don't think is always the healthiest. Like instinctually, we pull our hand back from the flame. We withdraw from something that hurts. If we do that, we also sever the connection that potentially leads to some sense of fulfillment in the work that we do. And leaning in feels dangerous and threatening. At the same time, it can also be nourishing in terms of making that connection, which is what drew us to this work in the first place. To avoid empathy fatigue, we need to feel like we're making a difference. It can't just be, I feel really bad for you. It can't just be emoting. It has to be, what am I gonna do with this? Not to fix that problem, not to stamp out all that pain, not to minimize that pain, but to maybe companion that pain and be with you so you are not alone. And when faced with the toughest questions, Ask yourself why you're so sure you're right and acknowledge that sometimes the most we can hope for is the 
best worst option or least bad option. And that's when I think we really need to come together and support each other and acknowledge that we have done the best we can do. And they also acknowledge the things we are doing, even if we wish they could be more. So I appreciate the invitation to be with you all this morning. I appreciate um, the hopefully comments and questions that are coming our way. And I think that Kevin and I are going to have a conversation based on his thoughtful monitoring of the chat box. Thanks so much, Dr. McCauley. We do have some questions that have come in here from the chat, which I'm going to curate and uh, then step away. We've got a few folks in the room, so if we have a question in the room, we can also uh, take that as well. Uh, so I think uh, first I would ask um, any thoughts on how to support a team which may have varying degrees of job satisfaction and burnout from I love my job to I'm about to quit on the same team. Kind of imagining maybe someone in a leadership role um, sounds like um, helping support manage a team of caregivers on the front lines. I appreciate that question very much. So I think um, one of the, my favorite sayings during the COVID pandemic especially is that for the last couple of years, likely we have not been our best selves. I certainly have not been my best self. I've had extra worries. I've gotten really tired. Um, I've gotten angry at the world many, many times. I think that if we enter our conversations with our colleagues, recognizing that I'm not at my best, you may not be at your best, that is sort of a level of mutual forgiveness that can be really helpful. I think it's also important not to project what we think we are able to do, which may or may not be what we're able to do, but what we think we're able to do onto somebody else. Like there are some things that I do that don't really burden me at all that I don't really think twice about, that some people that I work with, it is like a huge burden for them to have to do that and causes them incredible angst and worry. And the reverse is also true. There are some things that they're like, oh, could you just do that? And they could do it in a heartbeat. I'm like, that's really a big ask for me. So I think we need to recognize the differences. And lastly, what I would say is, I think that we just need to approach things with a sense of humility and compassion, yeah. such that if somebody is in a place where they are feeling burnt out or experiencing compassion fatigue, that's a place of suffering. And if we are so focused on, well, this is how to work your way out of it, we overlook the fact that they are suffering somehow. And acknowledging that first can be really helpful. And then trying to take thoughtful steps, not just the, hey, what are you doing for self-care? I'm not saying that's a bad question, but that's not the only solution. If people are saying, hey, I'm doing all the self-care thing you told me about, it's coming to work every day and doing ABC, then I think we need to figure out, can we modify ABC somehow? Because no matter how much you take care of yourself, if the work environment structurally is set up to have people burn out, they're still gonna burn out. And then eventually there may be a time, hopefully not, where somebody is like, this job is burning me out or whatever the ask is, is too much for me. And maybe that person needs to step away for a little while. Like we can only change so much. If someone says I can't engage in human suffering anymore, I've known people who've had to step away. One of my favorite ICU nurses, we shared one of our favorite patients who was probably the most painful case I ever had. Um, she now works as a phlebotomy nurse. Hopefully not forever because she is an incredible ICU nurse. But she's said for a little while, I need to go in there with a task and accomplish that task and not have my heart wrenched from my chest every time I talk to a patient. And I respect that. She's listening to her soul. And my wish is that one day she circles back around to do something that I think she's also exquisitely good at. But sometimes that needs to happen, I think. Another question here. Uh, I love this notion of extinguishing the platitudes a la Kate Bowler uh, and this movement toward a Macaulay leaning in. I'm guessing the phenomenon of walking into uh, or being consulted by a situation where there's a challenging patient or family encounter is not unique to PEDS palliative care. Um, can, you, can you give us a sense of what that leaning in might look like in the clinical setting? Thank you. Uh, great question. Um, when I was listening, I, I heard my mom. My mom died a couple of years ago um, at the age of 97. And um, she would sometimes talk about people 
who looked kind of threatening um, or intimidating or not espousing the same values that she espouses. And she would often say that she made a sort of mental point of remembering them when they were a cuddly little baby in their mother's arms. I sort of thought about that. So um, I think that the question I think goes to the fact that like pediatric palliative care is a tough field. At the same time, kids are kind of innocent and cuddly and and they didn't bring any of this on themselves. I think in adult medicine, especially there are people who maybe don't treat us very well, who may have made choices that we disagree with, who may espouse beliefs that we do not resonate with or we might even find offensive personally. If so, um, I think that in those situations, trying to see that person through a different set of eyes, um, whether that's sort of my mom's vision of when they were a little baby or just recognizing that um, they are experiencing something that no matter how hard I try, I will never really understand. Like I, all this notion of compassion leading to or empathy leading to compassion um, is really important, but I'll never truly understand what another person is going through. Um, and so in those situations, the leaning in can be really, really hard. And I don't mean to ask anybody to put themselves at true risk, like bodily risk. I don't mean to say we should be imprudent. At the same time, I think we do have to act unnaturally sometimes. I, uh, I'll always remember when I was training as a resident, there were some patients and families who were just gracious and kind and would bring the residents food baskets and say, you're awesome. And I will bet you that they got a lot of extra visits. You know, at the end of the day, if you have anything going on, those were nice rooms to go by. And there were some people who were not that way, who didn't make our lives very easy and may not have been super appreciative. And I think what happened then is they got fewer visits and probably felt ignored and probably got more angry for understandable reasons. And so I, I always felt like we should act unnaturally, which is, if that's the place I go because I feel welcome and valued, and this is the place I go be because I have to, maybe I have to go to that second place more often. And maybe that will actually help that person because otherwise I'm perpetuating a cycle. So I don't have any magical solutions, but a little bit of my mom's viewing things through a different lens and acting unnaturally, recognizing that all of us are not at our best selves might be helpful. <clears throat> Thanks for that. We've got just a couple of minutes left and I'm going to try to combine a couple of questions here. So uh, first, is there a simple or a take home message for you or us about getting simpler with age? And um, maybe some kudos here without getting that graduate degree in theology. What are two things I can do to be more thoughtful like you? Thank you for this wonderful talk. Um, thanks for those very uh, insightful questions. I think um, getting simpler, or at least more humble, like having a bunch of kids helps. Like my four kids are like my route to being humble and simple, I think, or at least they look at that as their calling in life. Um, I, I really do think that um, the notion of happiness coming from either getting more or, want, or needing less, like I, I come back to that a lot. Um, again, not to embrace mediocrity, but to call down to what's really most important. Um, I think being gracious um, and kind to ourselves, like the quote um, that I keep coming back to, my team could recite it because I say it so much, is from Rita Mae Brown that good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. Um, I say that all the time because I feel like I'm developing a lot of experience and you can figure out where that came from. Um, and um, ultimately, um, so this is going to be a little more theological, but um, one of my favorite authors um, is Anne Lamott. And um, one of the, her, my favorite quotes from her is, God loves us just the way we are, but loves us too much to let us stay that way. And I think that trying to find that balance of, at the end of the day, I did what I did. Like there's a wonderful um, prayer in, in certain Compline services in, in liturgy that says at the end of the day, we say, what has been done has been done and what has not been done has not been done. Which sort of is a way of ending the day without regret. Um, 
and also recognizing that tomorrow we have a chance to live again and to do maybe a little better with that benefit of experience that we generated yesterday. Um, so trying to find that balance of forgiving ourselves for what we're not and aspiring to be what we can be. Um, that's sort of how I break it down. At least get back to me in 10 years. I'll probably have broke it down even more. Well, I can't think of a better way to end our time together and would just ask all of us uh, in the room and virtually to thank our 2022 Goldman Berlin speaker, Dr. Bob McCauley. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Thank you all very much.